And if you want to turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, Titus chapter 3, Paul is writing to Titus. He's the head of, well, say head, he's kind of the head church planter, if you will, of an overseeing what God is doing on the island of Crete. So it's a defined space of area. And Paul is writing a letter to give him some instructions on what to do. Three chapters. Um, here's what you need to do. He says that the way you relate to your government, the way you as believers relate to the authorities that God has ordained and appointed over you, the, the way that you relate to one another in the body of Christ, the way that you relate to those who are far from God outside the body of Christ, the way that you relate to people around you is by far the most important and most vital testimony of the gospel. And if you get that wrong, then everything else, nothing else matters. You can preach all day long, but if you're not articulating and living it out in your life, then it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. So is your life different and how you relate to the different parts of society? And so in chapter 3, verse 1, he begins by talking about how we relate to government. Now, six verses we're going to try to tackle this morning. So let me just begin reading in chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them. To be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one and to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves, to various passions and pleasures, passing the days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration." And the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Seven verses. Four things I want to focus on in going through this passage that he highlights for us. The first one is what what kind of citizen are you? What kind of citizen are you? you know, of our nation, uh, are you? Does the implications of the gospel shape the way that you relate to the government? Does the gospel shape how you relate to the government and the greater society around us? That's the question he's asking because he begins by saying, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Well, this is difficult. It's becoming increasingly difficult in our country. How do we submit to a government that is growing increasingly rapidly, far more anti Christian towards us? How, how do, what do we do? How do we relate to the government around us? How, how does that affect us? Let me give you some examples. In Acts chapter 4, verse, verses 18 through 22. If you want to flip there, that means go left. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 4. Now I'll give you an example of how this relates to the disciples. So they called them the disciples and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of jesus 
They said, you know what? It's illegal for you to preach Christ in the community. Stop doing that. You need to stop doing that. We don't want you to do it anymore. So we just read, according to Titus chapter 1, chapter 3, verse 1, that we're supposed to submit to the authorities in the government, right? Well, now here's an example where the government has said, don't preach Christ. What do the disciples do? But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. In other words, you're going to have to deal with the implications of whether it's right to listen to God or listen to you. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them further threaten the disciples. They let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. A man had been healed, and they were preaching about, they were asking how this guy, well, how was he healed? What, what happened? What, and he said, well, Jesus healed him. Jesus, who the, you guys killed and buried, who rose again and ascended. Jesus, who was seen by more than 500 plus people in our community, and everybody knows that he's alive now, and now he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's the one who healed this guy. He healed him. He changed his life. And you're asking us to not preach that, and I'm sorry, we... You're going to have to deal with the implications of whether we should talk about it, whether we should. All I can tell you is what we have seen and heard, Jesus changed his life. And they said, we're going to really hurt you if you keep saying that. So be it. And, uh, and then they released him because they had no way to keep him. Okay, they had no rules that were established that could tell them that they couldn't preach about Jesus anymore. And so they released him, even though there were threats hanging over them. So that's an example of them rebelling, where the government called them to do something that they could not do because of their faith in Christ. And so here they entrusted themselves to the penalty that could come because the implications of the gospel were too powerful for them to be quiet. What's the principle there? The principle there is if the government if the government that God has ordained that, that is over us, that we are in, uh, under, if, if we're called to submit to them and submit to those authorities, but if they call us to do something that is against our faith in Christ, ultimately the proclamation of the gospel, most importantly, then you're, we're, we're just going to have to suffer the consequences of that as the disciples in this example didn't have significant suffering, but quickly after this, they find themselves in jail and beaten and other things. Paul whipped multiple times, in, you know, put in jail multiple times, lots of suffering. And the rest of the disciples, the martyrdom of um, Stephen is about to happen. In the next chapter, lots of things are happening, and, and it's, it's heating up. And they say, you know what, we'll, we'll take a bullet for the gospel. We're, we're willing to suffer if that's what it calls us, uh, what we need to do. And so uh, let's look at Romans chapter 13. It's another key verse in understanding how do we relate as believers. So go to the right, back towards Titus, Romans chapter 13. And hopefully, I'm trying to give you a framework so that we can, again, we talk often about having a biblical worldview. So as we inform our understanding of the gospel and of the word of God and how we relate to other things, we want to, fit, we want to answer this question about how do we relate to the government from the word of God. So chapter 13, verse 1 through 7, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists God, what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? 
then do what is good. You don't want to fear those in authority, then do what is right. Do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For you, for he does not bear the sword in vain, he being the government. If you do what's right, then you don't have to worry about anything. If you do what's wrong, then you should really be afraid because the government doesn't have a sword for no reason, okay? It's there to bring justice and judgment on sin and unrighteousness and, and, un, and, and uh, evil in the community. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Honor. Whether you like them, whether you like the taxes, please raise your hand if you enjoy paying taxes. I don't like paying taxes. I don't agree with how they spend the taxes. I don't agree with the way they do taxes. But nonetheless, we're called to do it. And so I do it unto the Lord, not to the government. Not in my endorsement of enjoying how they do finances. I mean, if any of us ran our households like the government runs the bank and the money that they constantly print, we would all be bankrupt. Right? So it's completely wrong. But, you know, God can handle that. He can deal with that. I'm just called to let the gospel shape me and the implications of the gospel shape me and to not have a contradiction in my life because I'm robbing from the government when I'm called to respect the government and I'm called to pay taxes. I need to pay taxes. Pretty simple. And then he goes on. uh, Let me read back the, the last part of that. Respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. Now, there's other passages in the scroll. Let me read one more, for to you, one more passage for you in 1 Peter. I'll give you one more. This is go past Titus to the right. Peter's in the section of scriptures called the general letters or epistles. Just past Paul's letters is the general. You've got Hebrews, and then go right past Hebrews, and you will find 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 2, very, very important passage because it says... Uh, that we are to submit to those authorities in our life, even bosses or governments or whatever, that treat us unjustly, that are wrong towards us, no problem. Because Jesus understands that. Jesus was God with flesh on, perfect, never did anything wrong, never sinned. When he was asked to pay taxes, he sent one of the disciples to go catch a fish and pulled the taxes out of the fish's mouth and paid the temple tax or whatever the tax was that he had to pay in that moment. He obeyed the rules. He did what he was supposed to do. And yet he was crucified as a criminal and he had done nothing wrong. And so if you want to argue, I shouldn't have to do, and I have rights and I'm supposed to do this and I'm supposed to, well, look at Jesus because he's our example. And he submitted himself to a government that crucified him. But through his death, we have life. In other words, there's a bigger story going on than your rights as a United States citizen. And the fact that you are submitted to the kingdom of God and the gospel is to be displayed through your life. And so that's 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble minded. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless for this you were called. 
that you may obtain a blessing for whoever desires to love life and sees good day and see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil. Let his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you? If you are zealous for what is good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, this is the key. This is the key to this passage. In your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Or some of your passages, some of your Bibles might have it said, in your hearts, sanctify Christ as holy. Set apart Christ as Lord, as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect and have a good conscience. What is he saying? What is he saying? This passage, this verse is used often, rightly, to to explain that we as Christians have got to understand the gospel and the Bible and what the Bible teaches so that we we can defend it apologetically, that we can give an apology, an explanation for our faith. So it's, it's used often to deal with, uh, you need to understand about what the Bible teaches about creation, and about morality, and about a lot of different things so that we can argue against evolution or against um, humanism and secular humanism that says that everything that exists is just part of an evolutionary process and all laws are relative and all definitions like marriage are relative. We're to be able to articulate why the Bible has rules and regulations, different things, and why God has put rules out there and a law to point us to our need for Jesus. We should be able to explain that stuff. But that is a secondary reason to this verse. The verse isn't foremost about apologetics. The verse is foremost about suffering, injustice, and injustice. And when people go, you know what? We keep beating you up. We keep arresting you. We keep persecuting you. We keep um, taxing you and penalizing you because you keep preaching the gospel or living Jesus out in your life or whatever the the circumstance is. We keep demoting you. We keep firing you. We keep being mean to you. Whatever the thing is you deal with where you're treated wrongly because of your faith in Christ. And at some point, somebody is going to ask the question, why do you put up with this? Why don't you fight back? Why don't you get mad? Why do you continue to have joy and hope and peace and trust in your God? And we can explain the hope that is within us. That's what he's saying. We now have an opportunity to explain the peace and the hope that is within us. Because we have suffered unjustly, that is the greatest opportunity for Jesus to be seen in your life. It's when you deal with injustices and you entrust yourself to God to fight for you. Then eventually somebody asks the question, why did you, why do you act that way? We can say, I mean, Jesus is my only hope. And, I, you know, I, yeah, I have rights in this world, in this, in this country, in this whatever, but ultimately I'm a citizen of a, another kingdom in another world. And Jesus is the king of that place. And I'm going to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to it. I'm not going to worry about these other things. God can take care of those things. I'm going to submit to the government, whether the government's right or wrong. Doesn't mean, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, does that mean that we shouldn't vote? No, we should vote. Does it mean that we shouldn't advocate for godly 
politicians. If that's possible to have a godly politician, I don't know if that's even possible. But yeah, we should fight for that. Yeah, it's kind of like a Christian lawyers. I mean, for the most part, that's a contradiction. Jumbo shrimp. It just doesn't make sense. And so it is possible. I know some Christian lawyers, so it's possible. But it's difficult nonetheless. Um, it's easier for the camel to get through the eye of a needle. than you know. So it's possible. But the bottom line is this. Are we allowing the gospel to be seen in our lives? Are we allowing it to change and transform us so that we would be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you? Yet do it with gentleness and with respect, having a good conscience. I think that um, you know, the, this, a great example of this is what has gone on in Baltimore. We have legitimately, there has been some injustices that we all know uh, that have happened. And the government has done some things that have been wrong, and people have been treated wrongly, legitimately. But is the best way to show that frustration by burning down businesses and other things and, and, different, and, and hurting people and shooting people and, and killing people that are just trying to do what the government, I mean, what God has called them to do to serve the community. Granted, there's some crooked, wrong cops that are whatever, but there's a lot of good folks that, that are just trying to uphold the laws. Is the right way to do Or is the right way to be like those that came out the second night and showed up and they were hugging policemen saying, Man, thank you for what you do, giving them water bottles, the, 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 the black men that stood between the protesters and the police and said, not in my city, you're not going to keep doing this. The men of God that were pastoring churches and men of God that stood up and stood between the protesters and the policemen, a lot of people didn't see this stuff, but it was happening, and said, this isn't going to continue happening. No, this is not going to, gonna, we are thankful. And they got trash bags and they got trash cans and they started cleaning up the streets. And they go, that's where the gospel is seen. Not in rebelling against and throwing, uh, you know, uh, bringing assault against uh, things. And we've got folks stoking the fire in our country. In the name of God, they have reverend in front of their name. God forbid that God would strike them dead if they're going to try to pervert the call of God on their life to stoke fires in people's lives rather than to let the gospel that they have supposedly been ordained by under be displayed in their lives by laying their lives down so that others may live, by serving, not stoking the fires. We are messed up as a country. And I'm going to tell you, this verse informs the way forward for us as believers to deal with it. How do we deal with it? Submit to the government. Don't, you don't want to get shot. Don't do things that make the government, you know, that, that, that cause us to get in trouble. Don't rob a store. Don't hurt somebody. Don't wound somebody. Don't shoot at policemen. Don't throw rocks at them. If they're wrong and they're unjust, love them. Turn the other cheek. Serve them. Advocate. Pray for them. And let the gospel be seen. And there are so many godly Christian leaders that have done that. I will tell you, I wish you could have been there yesterday to see all that God did in, in the celebration of Tammy's home going. But one of the things that was interesting, we, we had two segments of, of our community, a, a great display of the African-American community and a great display of the Caucasian white community, all there together. And I'm telling you, politics were nothing. It had nothing to do. I mean, we had the most glorious, wonderful service celebrating God. And I sat at a table with folks that are coming from different backgrounds than me, okay, which I really enjoyed being with them. 
Uh, and and one of the thing, a couple of them made the statement. They're like, man, they need to. The Baltimore needs to come down here and check out what's going on here. Baltimore needs to see what the gospel's doing among us. Baltimore needs to see what's happening here because it's the way we do things down here. This is different. This is different. I, I man, I pray for the day that we have churches are are interracial. <laughs> that that man, there is people from every generation, every tribe, every tongue every background, and it's just Jesus unifies us. I am thankful for what God has been doing at Crossleft, that we're not a group that, that is, uh, well, everybody's kind of all this segment of the population or that segment of population or that. We have a very diverse crowd from different backgrounds and different places and different stories, and it's not a clicky group. Now, that being said, there's not any group that you're going to be completely, have a great affinity for, so you're going to have to be uh, selfless and continue to reach out and talk to folks that look different than you, talk different than you, that you don't know, that you've never met, that whatever. And we need to continue to be very loving and, and, um, and caring to one, to one another and getting to know folks you don't already know, okay? We, we need to be that way, have that posture. But man, submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient and ready for every good work. What opportunities do we have to wash the feet of our government officials? I'll give you one last story on this. I'm totally ranting on, on that. I need to be quiet. But it's funny. We were going to Pinecrest, and we were, um, we were d- doing the food box ministry there at Pinecrest, and, and I was a couple minutes late, which is, I was coming from a soccer game, and coming down that, that street that's like five miles an hour. What is that street, Plymouth? It's 25, whatever. I think it was five. Uh, you know, my car doesn't idle at 25, and so I'm idling at 35, and, um, and just cruising down, and a policeman pulls me over, and it was beautiful because he followed me right into the parking lot where all our people were, okay? waiting with their food boxes for us to pray and be dismissed. There was no hiding. I mean, I should have just kept going, but they always see me. And when I turned in is when I noticed them behind me. And so I was like, there's nothing I could do. And so I, I, I'm in my car, and as soon as I, I did what I would normally do, I opened the door because our people are, you know, our church folks are sitting out there. So I get out of my car, and he comes up behind me, get in your car right now, you know, in front of our, I was like, do you have to shout at me in front of our church people? So I get back in the car. And, uh, and I'm sitting there, and he comes over and gets my registration and, and my driver's license and all this stuff. And, you know, and I, I was legitimately, I was, I was idling over the speed limit. Yes, it was true. Um, but um, evidently, it's illegal on that road. And, and so, you know, uh, but he was very uh, gracious and nice. And uh, he's like, what are you all doing out here? And I was like, well, he explained to us. what, And he was so gracious. And he actually, believe it or not, let me off. And um, I took that opportunity to promote the speed limit among our people. And so with him there, I let everybody know, hey, guys, just on behalf of our, our friend here. And then we, we prayed for him. And we, we, uh, we all got in a circle. We were about to pray before we broke up anyways and, and uh, went and delivered food. And it was an opportunity for us to thank him for serving God in his position. And it was really a beautiful moment, especially because I didn't get ticketed. <laughs> but that is what he's talking about, Every, that God would... Would, uh, and I, I am thankful for, man, they, they, what, a, what a dangerous um, position they are in. And yeah, there's some corrupt officers, but man, there's so many that, that put their lives on the line every day, and I'm thankful. Remind them to be submissive to the rulers and the authorities and to be obedient for every, and to be ready for every good work. And he goes on to say, to speak evil of no one. That includes the government. That's a hard one. And to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy. So how, the first thing is, how do we relate to the, as citizens? The second thing is, how do we relate to outsiders or others in the body of Christ, but certainly those apart from the body of Christ, those, those who don't know Jesus? Do we hold them to a standard that they're supposed to live as Christians and judge them when they don't live as Christians? Or do we just love them 
and don't expect them to live a standard that they, obviously, they don't know Christ. Why would you expect them to look like a Christian? Okay, they're, they're, they're far from God. Just love them. Don't speak evil of them. Avoid quarreling. Don't be a fighter. Don't be a slanderer. Don't be a fighter. Be gentle. That word be gentle means to have a sweet reasonableness in how you interact with other people. Sometimes if we would just think and not be emotional in our responses, we just think, be reasonable, reasonable, you understand, use reason in our thinking, it would, that would take care of a lot of problems, particularly with the Holy Spirit controlling us. Be gentle, show reasonableness, and then to show perfect courtesy. This means to be patient, a patient trust in the midst of difficult circumstances. I'm in a difficult circumstance. I want to lash out. I want to get mad, but I'm going to show courtesy on behalf of, of Jesus and his, the gospel causing me to, to hold back from what I would like to do in my flesh. It's, it's, it's also, this word would be meekness, would be another power under control. I'm just going to be meek. And it's not, that doesn't mean, meek doesn't mean a doormat. Meek means power under control, letting God be your uh, fight for you toward all people. The last implication of this perfect courtesy towards all people is being satisfied with less than is due to you. Are you satisfied with less than you feel like is owed to you? How many in our culture are content with what they have rather than feeling entitled to what another person has or what they feel like they deserve? discontentment and coveting what other people have is a declaration that God is not enough in your life. When we declare it's not fair, it's not right, you make no mistakes. What you're saying is God is not fair and God is not faithful. That's what we're saying. God, you're not fair and you're not faithful. If you really loved me, you would have given me this job, this house, this, 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 whatever. You would have blessed me in this way that I feel like you should bless me, that you bless them. It's not fair that you bless them and you didn't bless me in this way. It's not fair. You're saying, and we are saying in those moments, and all of us have those moments, in that moment we're saying, God has not been faithful and God is not enough. And that is a dangerous confession. But what if the gospel of Jesus was so satisfying to us that we were fine with less than what was due to us what if the gospel was so satisfying to us that we were fine with getting less getting shorted on this or that or being wrong and it said you know it didn't really matter it's all going to burn anyways it doesn't really matter it was wrong yeah but jesus is my sufficiency jesus is my provider jesus is my righteousness he's my hope he's my joy he's my satisfaction i rest in him and what he has done and I, I don't, that doesn't, I'm not going to squabble over this or that or whatever. That's what he's saying. What if we related to outsiders in that way? So what kind of citizen are we? Is the government shaping the way, is the gospel shaping the way we relate to a government and the greater society? And then the last two thoughts, how do we do this? Verse three, remember our lostness. Remember our lostness, for we ourselves were once foolish Formerly, we were foolish, without understanding, disobedient, led astray. We were slaves of various passions and pleasures, various strong desires and lusts. 
We were enslaved to those things, passing our days in malice or evil and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, but when the goodness of the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. What what that's saying is this word loving kindness is actually, interestingly enough, in the Greek, it is the word philanthropia. Philanthropia. What do you, philanthropy. The goodness. When God was, was, showed philanthropy to us, showed his loving kindness, his graciousness, that he was uh, philanthropic to us, graciously loved us when we so did not deserve it. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrated his love toward us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. We had sinned against him. We had violated his laws, his ways, and he died for us. All of us would have dropped the hammer on ourselves if we were God. And yet God died for us in the midst of our sin and being enemies of his. So when the goodness and the loving kindness of God appeared, it's kind of like that word is used to describe the sun rising in the morning. I mean, it's just, it was dark and then suddenly light started to shine and suddenly, boom, there's the sun. And the goodness of God has appeared to us in Christ, our Savior. Loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Uh, By the way, again, quick, I don't want to spend a lot of time. Verse 4, goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, clearly speaking of Jesus, calling Him God. Second, referenced, if you are here last week, we talked about the deity of Christ is throughout the Bible. Jesus is not a man. He's not the brother of Satan. Hello, Mormons. He is not uh, a... A man, as Jehovah Witnesses teach, clearly Jesus is God. It says it right here. The goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us. He rescued us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Theologians talk about, we get in this in the gospel-centered life and community, it is an alien righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness. It's a passive righteousness. Okay? The righteousness of Christ is, is two things. Two, there's lots of elements of it, but, but two things to think about. It's alien, and it's kind of out of this world, okay? It's not a righteousness that you can find in this world. There's no righteousness like this in this world. And certainly, there's no righteousness like this in your life and in my life. It's alien. It comes from out of space. It comes down to us. That is the righteousness of Christ. And not only is it an alien righteousness, it's also for us a passive righteousness, meaning that you are not actively doing the righteousness. Christ is actively doing it in you. Your part is to be passive and let the righteousness of Christ be big in your life. Christ works it out in your life. And so it's a passive righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. He has saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing, the bathing of regeneration, the cleansing of a sinner, and the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Well, he has washed us through the blood of Christ. Renewal of the Holy Spirit is poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's interesting, this concept of the washing of regeneration, it means to have a new life used in Jesus' time. The Stoics, which was a segment of philosophers in their population, 
um, they used it to talk about the referring to the restorations in the new world that that you know things are going to get better and there's going to be like for instance if there's a uh, there's a big fire and then suddenly everything starts to grow green again that's that's what they would use this word to talk about it looked like there's death and now there's life springing up from the ground and so um, the the Jewish people used it to speak of one day the Messiah would come and he would bring regeneration of the world. So both of them used it to talk about the world, but but the Bible and in uh, New Testament Christianity, it begins to speak of regeneration changing the individual, not the world, not the earth being regenerated, not having a new world when the Messiah comes, but people go from death to life. And they're given life again. So the washing of regeneration means that we go from being spiritually dead towards God to being alive now. So being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to His eternal life. So reviewing these thoughts, what kind of citizen are you? How do you relate, yo, how do yo relate to others? And then remembering our lostness, remembering and retelling the gospel, remembering what God has saved you from, and retelling that to other people. That's the third point. I mean, that's the fourth point, is to remember how God, how what God has done for you, thinking about how you used to be, uh, and then, then sharing with people how the gospel has appeared, and He's provided salvation, and a righteousness that's foreign to all of us, He's given us to be our righteousness. The last thought I want to give you on the next slide is, is three quick implications of this stuff. What does this mean? What do we do with it? How does this affect us? Well, three quick things. Everyday obedience is our best witness. Your best witness, my best witness, is everyday obedience. It's not the extravagant things, it's the mundane, simple things. In fact, that's the second point, is the gospel is best displayed in the mundane, in being a mom, in being a dad, in being a godly husband, in being a godly wife, in being a godly uh, worker at your place of employment, in being a godly citizen. Christians should be by far the greatest citizens in our country. We should by far be the best citizens because the gospel and everything we do, the gospel changes us and affects the way that we relate to the government. Even when the government's unjust or doing things wrong, we continue to be different because of what Jesus has done in our lives. Tim Chester, he said this, people may not like it when we talk about self-control and submission. They don't like it when we preach. You know, you ought to be self-controlled. You should submit and all those things. But they find it attractive when we live it. You ever think about that? People don't like you get up in their face saying, well, you ought to be this way, we ought to do this, whatever. But when they see it displayed in your life, they're like, man, that's really awesome. They find it attractive when we live it. Unbelievers who are repelled by the Christian's teaching on headship within marriage and the, the biblical definition of marriage are attracted by Christian marriages they see. Unbelievers who find Christian morality restrictive are nonetheless attractive by the good lives of the Christians they know. It's a peculiar thing. And so when they see the gospel changing our lives and our families and the way that we relate to one another as the body of Christ and the way that we relate to other people outside the body of Christ, they might not like it when we preach to them, you should do this, you should do that, and we push moralism on them, rightly understood, they shouldn't like that. But they love it when they see it displayed in our life. And so here's the thing, according to 1 Peter chapter 3, are we ready to explain the gospel and explain the hope that's within us when they ask? Or are we ready to share it within the context of how God's changing us? 
And your family's different. The way you do family, your, your kids seem to respect and do this and do that. And they're just, it's what, you know, it's really incredible. You know, it's God's grace. Let me tell you, my, I am by far not a perfect parent. I, my, we struggle with our parenting. We struggle with this. I have to confess this and confess that. And I deal with this anger issue and that anger issue and this frustration and that frustration. But nonetheless, God's doing a work in our kids' lives and in our lives. And, and he's doing it. Now, we've suddenly gotten the gospel into a conversation. You see that? Instead of saying, Somebody says to you, your kids are really different. Uh, that's really just the, the way y'all do family. I've got a booklet I'd like to show you. Um, and let me show you this booklet. It, it's kind of awkward then. Okay, now I'm not saying you shouldn't clearly articulate the gospel. Nobody is going to go to heaven because they see your godly family. At some point, we've got to articulate the gospel, right? And call people to repent and trust in Jesus. You understand that? I'm not saying that living godly lives is going to cause people to go to hell, but it gives you the credibility then to share the gospel. You understand? And so that is the first and foremost part of that is instead of preaching about moralism and getting mad at our government and the way society has continued to get more and more wicked, let us allow the gospel to change our lives. And as he's changing our lives, be ready to share with other people how we need Jesus every day and how he is just beautiful, wonderful, powerful. He's the king. He's changing and transforming us so that we can share with them. He could change and transform your life too. And now the gospel is the center of the conversation rather than some external list of morality that we push on somebody that they never can live up to because we can't live up to it apart from Jesus. Jesus becomes the focus. That is what reformation is about. Allowing the gospel to change and transform us as we submit to the different places that God, the different authorities, different things he's put in our lives, that we do life different. And then we remember what God has saved us from so that we can share the hope that we have found in Christ with the world around us. That's what it means to live missionally. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reality of your gospel, how you change and transform us. That God, I am thankful that we don't, I don't have to stand up in front of folks and call them to live moralistic, good lives. But God, I can I can know that that my only hope and our only hope as your people is the righteousness that has come through Jesus, that has come from out of this fallen world, the alien righteousness, that to us is a passive righteousness. We don't earn it by the things we do. We just simply submit to your righteousness, yield to your righteousness. God, would you somehow in your power, in your might, in the power of your spirit, in the authority of your word, would you take all these things we have talked about from your word, proclaimed from your truth, and would you drive them deep into our hearts to bring change and transformation? In Jesus' name we pray, we worship, we give. Amen.